be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the No Way Up podcast. We have another new guest for you this time. First time on the podcast, Grantland golf writer Shane Ryan. Shane, would you say you are in? All right, so we're recording this on Thursday, August twenty eighth. Are you in Ryder Cup mode or are you in FedEx Cup playoff mode? Yeah, I'm totally, totally in Ryder Cup mode, man. I mean, I wish the PGA Tour people have been so nice to me, so I wish I could say FedEx Cup. Now, I'm doing, I'm doing a great one piece that's coming out tomorrow, which, you know, is Friday. Uh, it's about, you know, what's going to happen on Tuesday with the Ryder Cup picks. Um, and one thing I was thinking is, like, you know what? We don't have in golf, we don't have a draft. We don't have a trade deadline. We don't have, like, we don't care if, if a golfer comes out early from college. We don't really have retirements because dudes play on the senior tour forever. Tuesday is our only, like, off-the-course day. Like, like captain's picks are it, basically. That's our one, like, you know, like, off-season or off-the-course thing that we can get psyched about. That's a, that's a great point. I've never thought of that. Well, we actually we had an idea back in the spring for that when the match play future was very much up in the air. Uh, we wrote a thing, which you probably haven't seen, about how the players – should have a sort of draft for the center match player, whatever that, whoever the new sponsor is for the match play. Basically, you get seated uh, one through sixty-four, and I won't go into the details of it, but it would be televised on the Golf Channel. You tune in on a Tuesday night, so all the during practice you wouldn't know who you were playing, and you essentially got to choose your playing partner for the. How much? How much more interesting would the match play be if that was the case? And you got to call out individual opponents. See, I mean, that, that is such a good idea, and I've, I've heard a modified version of that for the Ryder Cup where one captain is like, okay, number one, we're leading with Phil Mickelson, and the hero captain goes, all right, fair enough, Victor Dubasson against him, and we're going to go number two, Justin Rose, and then the American captain comes back and says, I mean, it would be like, yeah, and like the same thing for your Accenture idea, it's so good. And it's like, why wouldn't they do that? I mean, it would be so much fun. Everybody would tune in. It would be great. <laughs> like Phil would show up with just a binder full of data on every player, and he'd be going through their crunching numbers as they as they go through the draft and whatnot. Like that, just like the fantasy football guy you play with that takes it way too seriously. It's like it would be infinitely hilarious. Like there's no way I would miss that. On, like if they covered that live on the golf show. Well, there'd be so much drama too. Like, like nobody likes Patrick Reed. So would would everyone beat him, or would everybody just avoid him till the end? Would everybody avoid Poulter? You know, like things like that. Like uh, when it was Bubba's turn, like who would he pick? You know, like, it would just be it would be awesome. Yeah. Well, they do your idea for the matchups. They do do that for the Presidents Cup, right? They sit down in front of each other and kind of like I don't. There's not really a clock and. I remember Fred Couples putting a name up on the board, and Nick Price had to match it, and Nick Price put a name up on the board, Fred Couples matched it. I don't know why they wouldn't do that with the Ryder Cup. I mean, that would add a whole new level of strategy, especially come Sunday. I will say, though, that I think I would like that, and I think in the end I would choose that if I had the option. But there's something cool, too, about the blind selection of, like, because it lends more strategy to the captain's picks because they can think, like, all right, who are they going to put out first? If you know if they're going to put their top gun, do I want to waste somebody? Like, do I want to put? I, I don't know who the waste pick at the U.S. team would be. Like Zach Johnson or someone. <laughs> like, you know, throw him out there. 
and then throw my like top guns out at the end. So it, it's kind of fun to see how that how that lines up once they do that too. Yeah, but at the same time, like I think it was my my friend Adam Sarson and I were talking this week. We we're talking Tigers never had like a good Sunday singles match. He always gets paired up with like. Andrew Coltart or Jesper Parnovic or something on Sunday. And it's just, it's amazing how it's all fallen out. Like the best uh, match I remember him having was, I think it was, did he play Ernie Els in that president's cup or they tied or just in the playoffs that he just got went and played against Ernie Els decide, decide the president's cup, like the O three president's cup or something like that. Yeah. I'm not a president's cup scholar. Yeah, so I'm not... No, no one really is. I don't know why I brought that question up. It's not the best. Not the best topic of discussion, especially when we're a month away from the writer. So it brings up an interesting question of like, you know, Team World and the President's Cup is no worse than Team Europe. I mean, there's a ton of great players. There's no reason the President's Cup shouldn't be as awesome as the Ryder Cup, except for I guess like history and tradition, right? I mean, that's the only thing. That's the only difference. Yeah, it's just the rivalry isn't there. I mean, it's not first. It's not been competitive enough. The internationals have not made it nearly uh, competitive enough in the short history that the event's been there. And it's just a cheap play off the Ryder Cup. I mean, it is just, I mean, it, the Ryder Cup, I can't explain how excited I get for it. I mean, I told myself, I've been telling myself all year about how big a favorite Europe is. And it's some, there's, I haven't picked a day yet, but I'm going to flip the switch where I stop being so negative and I just turn my attention towards rooting for the United States. And looking at, the, more, the more I look at it, though, the further I keep pushing that day back. Like, I can't. I just can't picture it. I, I I pictured a little bit better than I did maybe a month ago, but um, and just in looking, just every time I pull up that European team page and the U.S. team page and look at how they're how the U.S. guys are playing. Granted, it's been better, but I just can't be confident, you know, in a team that's bringing Bubba Watson over as the number one player on foreign soil when the guy can't hit a shot without being distracted on a Friday at at Ridgewood Country Club in a FedEx Cup event. Like, there's going to be an international incident with Bubba Watson. Uh, here, here's the thing, though. Yeah, I totally agree. No, Bubba Watson is not going to understand Europe at all. He's going to embarrass himself somehow. But the thing that I love about this U.S. team is it, it's just such a group of oddballs. So you got Bubba, who's like, you know, the world's biggest narcissist. Like, he's like a total head case. Then you've got, you know, you've got Jimmy Walker, who's kind of like this nerd who, who has like a laboratory in the Southwest where he takes photos of stars and he's been in National Geographic. <laughs> you have, you have like Zach Johnson, crazy like extreme Christian, right? Like the like the ultimate like Christian dude. Patrick Reed, who nobody likes. Uh, <laughs> Kucher, Kucher, who everybody likes. Uh, and you know, this is and we're only going into you know Nicholson, who's like kind of his own weird breed of lunatic. Like this is like the like the dirty dozen or something. Like I am so excited for this team. Because I think against all odds, I think they have a chance to pull through. And my only hope, my only hope is that Tom Watson keeps the weirdness going with his captain's picks. Like I, I hope he doesn't go with like Snedeker and Stricker or whoever. I hope it's like Brendan Todd and Hunter Mahan and, and Keegan Bradley. So we have, you know, an OCD guy in there. You know, a guy in Brendan Todd who looks like he's a computer programmer. Like I, I hope it's just. I want this team as weird as possible. And you left out Jim Furyk too. Just a whole other wrinkle in there. I mean, it is. It's, there's no camaraderie between any of these these guys on this team. When you think about it, and uh, I mean, it, yeah, it's the chalkiest subject, and everyone has their own opinion here. But who do you think are the three going to be the three captains picked? Who would you take if you were Tom Watson? Yeah. Okay. So I this is the subject of the uh, the story I'm writing in Grandland tomorrow. So. 
I'll give you a sneak preview. Although by the time it comes out, it probably won't be a sneak preview. But um, I think Hunter Mayhem is a great pick, and I think he's going to pick him. Uh, I think Hunter, yeah, Hunter, you know, we all know we had the the bad, uh, the little chip against Graham McDowell that lost the Ryder Cup in 2010. But this guy also had an 11-match win streak at the Accenture match play, and I think it was like 169 holes that he had never trailed uh, in a match wow. play match in that, in that tournament. He's a tough dude. I mean, he's a guy who I think will win a major someday. His game is his game's really great right now, and he's going to have a lot to play for. So I would pick him. I think he's going to pick him. Um, I think unless he misses the cut this week, we'll probably see Keegan Bradley because Keegan Bradley, you know, he pairs so well with Phil Mickelson, at least in Medina he did. Um, and he's a good putter and everything like that. I think, I think Bradley is, he's going to pick him and it's a good pick. The third pick is a really curious one. He could go to Snedeker, which I think would be a terrible pick. Um, Webb Simpson would be kind of the safe pick because, you know, we know he can play under pressure because he's got a, He's got a major championship. His, his form's okay right now, and uh, he's got experience in the sense that he played one other Ryder Cup. I guess it could go to Stricker. I, I feel like that's becoming less and less of a possibility, so I don't think that's actually going to happen. My guy and the guy I would pick is Brendan Todd. And oh, I don't man. think yeah, I don't think Watson's going to pick him, but the dude, the dude can straight punt and chip. I mean, he's among the best in the tour at those right. two things, which is so valuable. Um, and, uh, you know, he doesn't have any experience. He never won a major. He won his first tournament this year. Never been in a Ryder Cup. But, uh, yeah, I, I would love to see him pick Brendan Todd. I would guess Webb Simpson, though, is going to be Watson's third pick. I'm going to surprise you. I, I am completely on board for Brendan Todd. I was so relieved to hear somebody else say that. I've been actually saying that since about – you nice. know, when he finished top ten at the Memorial is when I was fully convinced. Because when he won the Byron Nelson, I, I specifically wrote, I was like, like, here we go, another crazy random winner on the PGA Tour this year, another Stephen Bowditch. Like, I don't think we're looking at the next superstar. And he actually surprised me more after he won. He finished tied for fifth at Colonial, tied for eighth at Memorial, 17th at U.S. Open, and then had top fives at the Quicken Loans and the Greenbrier after that. I was like, all right, I was sold on Brennan, on uh, Brennan Todd. He's been yeah. struggling a little bit since then. I guess really since mid-July. I've got looking at his page now. He's not really he – finished better than tied for 39th since July. But um, that's another another question I have that I wouldn't have asked probably two weeks ago, but I just started reading Mark Brody's book, Every Shot Counts. Um, and it kind of – have you have you read it at all? Have you heard about it? No, I've heard about it, but I've not read it yet. So uh, the crux of it is that – well, first of all, I just realized how dumb a lot of the things I say about the game of golf are. Like, <laughs> and and I, like, I always said about the Ryder Cup, man, you need guys that make putts. And, like – I'm t- I'm literally 25% into the book, and I'm I'll never say that again, just because it's just <laughs> it, it 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 doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, and I think especially in the Ryder Cup, it's kind of a cliche. Like, everyone has their own opinion on what the specialty is for a Ryder Cup player. Like, oh, you need somebody with length, or oh, you need somebody that's gonna make putts. But I think if anything, the Ryder Cup is the best example of somebody that you need a good all-around game because you can't hide any you can't hide any part of your game in alternate shot like. You can't, no. you, you know what I mean? So, uh, well, is there a typical prototype player that you look for? That you know, like, so we're talking about Brendan Todd, who has no experience in the event. I think I do think experience matters on an international uh, Ryder Cup. But is there anything in particular that you, a new skill in particular that you favor? I guess. Well, let me, let me say this about experience first, because this is like that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. 
you look at guys, so in 2012, Davis Love had four captains picked, and it was, you know, Jim Furyk, Steve Stricker, Brent Snedeker, uh, and I think Dustin Johnson was his fourth captain's pick. Now, the nation of young and old, Snedeker at that point had not played one, and Dustin Johnson experience. But his two quote-unquote experienced guys were Jim Furyk and Steve Stricker. Mm-hmm. However, at that, at that point, the U.S. had lost six of eight Ryder Cups. So I think at some point we have to say, what does that mean? What does experience mean? In the, in the case of the U.S., it is completely negative experience. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it, it's, it's terrible records. Like Jim Furyk's record is really abysmal. I think he's won 33% of his matches in Ryder Cup, which is real bad. Stricker the same way. Uh, you know, Furyk, we know kind of, he won a major in, tw- in 2003. He won the U.S. Open, but he kind of struggles under pressure. We know Stricker really struggles under pressure. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, what does experience mean? So for the Europeans, experience means Ian Poulter, Lee Westwood, Sergio, guys who have, like, really, really positive experience in the Ryder Cup, and that's great. But for the U.S., experience, I don't think it's necessarily a plus. And so, I, I, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Well, no, no, I mean, I just think that's like, it's something that I keep hearing from the media, and it's like, yeah, experience is good, but only – I feel like it's only as good as the actual experience is. People are – you know, people are treating Steve Stricker right now like this, like, icon of the game. And it's like, wait a second, like, like hold up a second, you know? Or or Brent Snedeker. They're like, oh, Snedeker's got experience. Well, no, he, like, he blew a Forsens match in 2012. And every time this guy's been, you know, in contention in a major, he, he shoots 80. You know, you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's the kind of experience you want. Now, I agree that first-timers, the pressure is going to be like nothing they've ever felt before. But when you have a generation in the U.S. that has absolutely known almost nothing except failure, like, really, is, like, is experience that much of a thing? Do we really want to? Like, is that the ingredient we really care about at this point? I agree. I'm with you here. I really am. I, I think if you have enough sample data to show somebody's extensive experience and their amount of suckitude is that of Jim Furyk's, like, that's not a positive thing. Like, Furyk's career record in four ball is 1-8-1. and one. Like, if he plays four ball, that's, he can't play four ball. That's a, that's a huge sample. You can't put him out there. I don't care how good he's playing. I know Watson's going to, but like, there's no way I would, I would line him up in four ball. I just could not play him out there. I think alternate shot fits him a lot better than the four, a four ball mentality does. But I just feel like that first, that shock of being on the first tee, um, th- th- if you played in the event at least once, I think that matters to me. Like, especially for a captain pick. Like mm-hmm. you have, I feel like you need to have been there. I just, I don't. That's why I don't think he's going to take Todd. I think Todd is a better option than Webb Simpson. I think that. La- I think I agree. I think Mayhan's going to go be one, Keegan two for captain six. That's probably what I would do as well. That third mm-hmm. spot, I think I would lean towards Todd, but I think it's going to be Snedeker. I know I spoke with uh, Shane Bacon of Yahoo about this a couple weeks ago, just about Watson and you know Snedeker have an RBC tie, like they're. I don't know how good of friends they are, but they have a relationship. It's clear they have a working relationship. I think that kind of familiarity. Would they get some pressure from RBC to pick, you know, Snedeker? I I, 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 I don't see him making any shocking moves, that's for sure. Yeah, I think, I think they're definitely pals, right? But I think – I don't think you can necessarily pressure Tom Watson at this point in his career. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, I don't know if you can swear on your podcast, but the I don't give a play oh, yeah. back Watson has got to be like – Sky high, you know. I mean, and yeah, I, I guess Snedeker's, Snedeker's form is not so good, 
it right now, it, it's it's fine, and it's probably better than Todd's, but I don't think it's so good that you necessarily, like, just take him, you know, without question, because when is this guy... So Watson, when he did his press conference after the PGA Championship, the Monday after, said, you know, what are we going to consider, all this stuff, but then the last thing he said, he's like, I want to emphasize the gut factor. We're going to pick guys with, with, like, strong guts who can make these shots under pressure. I don't see anything about Seneker that leads you to believe that he has the gut factor at all. Uh, that's, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know what you can expect from this guy under pressure. And if you don't, if you don't think you can expect anything from him, I don't know. Like, why would you pick him? You know what I mean? Pick, sure, pick Webb Simpson. Maybe Brendan Todd's too, too green or whatever. But I don't know. Snedeker, to me, is just like a – it's just such a conservative loser pick in some ways. Yeah, the problem with that is you – you what you're saying about the gut factor, there's no one knocking on the door that really feels like has that gut factor. Whatever that means, it's mm-hmm. not like Harris English is really battle-tested and we, <laughs> we know how he's going to handle the pressure or Ryan Moore is going to step up to a, a putt and, and we think he's going to make it as well. So that's just where oh. – uh, it's 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 the lack of enthusiasm from the chances of the U.S. team comes from on my end. So, um, yeah, I'm looking at them. It's, it's going to be fun. I can't wait. I really can't. I was looking at what's interesting. The TV schedule this year, I mean, I live in, this, I live in Chicago. I live in the central time zone. It starts at 1.30 on Friday morning. Like, how? what is my strategy? What is your strategy for watching? Like, do I come home Thursday night from work and go to sleep? for six hours and then wait, get some coffee going and get going at one thirty, or what's the plan? Yeah. I mean, well, look, I'm going to big time here. I'll be in Scotland. So I'm oh, not going to, yeah. So, Hey, I don't know. I don't know what you, what you'd be on to in this situation. No, but no, I think if I was home, if I were home, I would say, yeah, I mean, okay. It's, I would say if there's anything that you want to watch live, it's the right. I mean, oh, I'm watching it live. That's not a question. The question is whether or not to stay up all night and watch through the morning or to go to sleep before. I would try to get some shut-eye before, unless unless you want to make it an all-night party, but then you run the risk of, like, not having not having anything in the tank for the, uh, you know, the second round of matches on Friday. Exactly. And that's actually I'm, – I'm, I'm moving from Chicago, like, two days after the Ryder Cup ends. And so <laughs> – it's like my last week in Chicago too, so I have to figure out. I, I'm already like, trying to game plan this thing. If you can't tell, like how I'm going to be in front of a TV to watch all this stuff without being completely exhausted. But um, where, are you, where are you moving to for Chicago? I'm moving actually to Amsterdam. Uh, I'm going on like a, a rotation with my company for 18 months there, and I wish if I wish I was going there two weeks earlier. If not, if that was the case, I would have snagged all the way to get over to. Uh, get over to Glen Eagles, that's for sure. But I'm just going to barely miss it. Totally, yeah. No, yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right, man. I think like I think a little nap beforehand is good uh, and then watch it. And then, yeah, I mean, the Ryder Cup, the minute you hear, like, that, that music, you know, I can still hear it in my head. Like, it's just, it's just such an amazing event. It's actually the first golf event I ever covered, and the 2012 Ryder Cup that I covered for Grandland, to me, is still the best sporting event, period any sport that I've ever covered. It was amazing. It was the, it's the best sporting event I've ever attended. I went Friday, and we went – we, we got there first thing in the morning. We saw the Bubba Watson, Ian Poulter first – which is – it's weird for me to root for Bubba Watson in general at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. I mean, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen in sports, honestly, that first tee where people just screaming USA at 7.08 in the morning or whatever it was. 
him just launching a tee shot and just everyone going absolutely nuts. I mean, there were so many people around that first tee, we couldn't see anything. So we just kept trying to, like, leap at, leap ahead a couple holes. Finally, we figured out we had, we leaped up uh, left ahead, like, five holes, waited on the 15th green, which was the drivable par four, and we waited there, like, on a hill behind it for an hour and a half for them to come through. And the morning matches, the U.S. won every single one. They, they won the 15th hole every single time, and they closed the first point there. And that's where Keegan drained that putt, and, uh, and Pepsi, his caddy, was whipping the flag around his head. I mean, I've never heard of a roar that loud on a golf course. It's it chilling. And just watching the, the golf channel's been playing, like, the greatest rounds, even though it's been U.S. collapses they've been playing, just watching it, getting back in Ryder Cup mode, has me completely jacked up. That's awesome, man. Yeah, no, it, it was absolutely – the environment was like nothing I ever experienced. I don't know if you guys at the course – did you have the little radios where you could listen to the BBC feed? Uh, I don't remember if it was the BBC feed, but we actually had little TVs. Uh, like American, our buddy. If you had an American Express card or something, like you could have a, you could like have a TV and you could be watching stuff going on in other holes. So that helped as well. Yeah, well, on the Bubba Watson topic, let me just say you guys are doing the Lord's work. Could <laughs> be ongoing. Could be ongoing Bubba as well. You're my heroes. I like. I just love. I love the uh, pray for Ted Scott. Uh-huh. The consummate is so deserved and so good. I just think it's awesome. It, I mean, it just it, it amazes me how much it keeps going. Like, I keep expecting it to stop, and then like I'll be at work and I'll come back and I'll have like fifteen messages on Twitter about something something else that I just did that I wasn't even aware of. And like, it's amazing. He just keeps. He's a parody of himself at this point, but he gives us so much material. It's impossible not to keep picking on it. But it, uh, it, and it's it's funny. Like, okay, so here's a guy named Bubba who's like kind of quirky. Dresses a little funny, has a pink driver, and hits the crap out of the ball. You know, hits it 350 yards. He, like, just by those, like, four criteria, he is so likable. And he is is the absolute opposite of his image. And so it's taken a long time. It's coming back on so hard now because people are finally realizing, wait a second, like, this this guy is not at all who he thought he was. But it still amazes me how many fans he has and how how often I get the reaction what? You guys are called No Laying Up. You don't like Bubba Watson? How could you not like the guy? Free spirit. I'm like, just pay any kind of attention to him at all. And it's kind of like, it's just embarrassing. that I read someone posted, I, I, sorry, I can't get credit to who posted. Someone said that Bubba's cheers were outweighing Rory's cheers this week in, in, uh, at Ridgewood. It's like, that alone just states that, like, how, how, I'll just say it, like, how dumb some Americans are. Like, it just, it blows my mind as to, what the kind of things that people appreciate. He carries himself like he's an everyman. He wears a $500,000 watch and treats everyone around like shit. Let's just call it like, like it is. I mean, and, uh, I mean, I honestly, at this point, I, I want him on the leaderboard just because I want him to keep giving us material. Like it's, it's so entertaining to me. <laughs> the guy, the guy's got no filter. I, uh, you know, we know we don't have to rehash the whole long drive thing, but, uh, I went up to the kids who were, you know, on the tee, on the 10th tee, where the long drive competition was being held, uh, and I knew I was going to get good stuff because they're really nice kids. So I, I started by saying, you know, who, who's your favorite golfer that you've seen today? You know, this was late in the day. And they're like, oh, we really liked, you know, Ricky Fowler and Keegan Bradley. And, you know, they came through with Phil, and they were all having a really good time, and they were, you know, betting with each other, and they were really nice. And, and I said, well, you know, who is your least favorite golfer? And I had not finished the sentence before both of them were like, Bubba, he's an yes. asshole. <laughs> yes, a new generation. 
I mean, yeah, yeah, the young generation is getting it. Not only did he pull the stuff you heard about, he was also swearing at every, all the staff there. He was, he was like literally swearing, and he was mad that somebody had jumped ahead of them on a practice tee, and he was going, "This is fucking bullshit." And like, oh he, my god, yeah, it destroyed a tantrum around these like kids who, you know, who knows? Like before the tournament, they might have been huge Bubba fans. The guy just has no, ah oh man, he has no self awareness, and it's it, it is just endlessly fascinating to watch him. You know, I'll, stick his foot farther and farther down his own mouth. Amazing. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. This was back at the 2012 Memorial Tournament. Um, I was out watching during the Pro-Am, and um, Bubba hits his – number eight like a par three. He hits a, a shot way left into the crowd and tour sauces it, does the wayward point, and, like, starts <laughs> starts going back and bitching to Ted Scott. I can't, even, I can't even focus, man. All these cameras, I can't even focus. This is a pro-am. Remember this. This is a pro-am. So he's – I got, and I'm sitting in front row, like, watching this, and I'm with a friend of mine. We just kind of look at each other like, does he think this counts for something? And then – so we watched, we followed him up to the green, watched him finish out. We went and watched him see off on nine, which is a par four, and he hits iron off of it. It's like a 412-yard par four through the chute. Hits iron. He hits it kind of, like, strangely fat or off the toe. And it goes straight. It's kind of an okay shot, but it didn't look very pure at all. And there's a small group of people around the tee, and no one really claps or does anything because, again, it's a pro-am. He, <laughs> while he's getting the tee out of the ground, he just sarcastically goes, nice job, Bubba. Thanks, everybody. And, like, picks the tee up and just starts walking. And, we like, every, even people I didn't know that were standing around were, like, looking at each other like, is he serious? Did he want us to cheer for him during the pro-am? And, like, I happened – I was videoing it. I have all this on video. And, like – I, it, that was kind of when the tide turned for me, especially. I mean, I already didn't like that. I was like, all right, this guy is really the worst. Well, I got good news for you, Chris, though. Uh, he has said he has said he's come out, he's trying to be a better man and a better Christian. So we, we can all stop worrying, you know? It is the year, it's the year of rejoicing. That's what he said. It's the year of rejoicing. I also want to know how somebody who's tweeted almost 50,000 times claims to have deleted the internet off his phone. I don't even know what that means, first of all, to delete the internet off your phone, or if it's physically possible. <laughs> no, that was, that was, he said that at the British Open. I was there when he said that. Yeah, I don't, who knows what it means. And somebody followed up, and he was like, oh, yeah, check it sometimes, but, like, not all the time. <laughs> I think what got me to follow you on Twitter, when I first saw you, somebody retweeted, it was, I forget what you said, but it was Bubba making an ass of himself. But then you added the hashtag Year of Rejoicing after it, and I just died because it's, it was so perfect. Like, it's just such a funny phrase, and it's so, like, highfalutin and, and such nonsense because Bubba is such a baby. But I was like, I'm going to do this tweet, but i got to follow them right now. I don't know. Uh, I can't take credit. I can take credit for praying for Ted Scott. I can't take credit for Year of Rejoicing. I think I got that from, I, I don't know that, Brendan Porath was from SD Nation. I think that's where I got that from, so... I, again, yeah. I can't take credit for that, but when you said that, I love that, too. It's about rejoicing. You know, the whole year is about rejoicing. But, yeah, uh, you're, you're, we're in the midst. We're at the end of the year of rejoicing, where he won't do a uh, a drive long drive contest for the charity, which, by the way, is, is like Christianity and charity are above his sword and shield. They're his defense against his own, like, you know, dick behavior. That's the thing he trots out. And then... Here we have a here we have a charity thing where he could have won you know twenty five grand for his own charity and he won't do it. Yeah, oh, very funny. God. It's the best. But so you said that the twenty twelve Ryder Cup was the first uh, event, or first best golf event you covered. 
Yes, how did you start get um, in with Grantland? How did you start with this, the role you currently have, you know, writing about golf for Grantland? You write other stuff for Grantland, too, as well, right? Yeah, so I'll give you the short version of the story. I, yeah. uh, I, I went to school at Duke, and so I was a big college basketball fan. Uh, I moved to New York City after, after graduating um, and was trying, I was an English major, so I was trying to write novels, trying to write short stories, trying to be published and all that stuff. Uh, so basically, but I also had to have a day job. New York City is very, very expensive. So I think like three years, like fast forward four years of doing nothing, being totally unproductive, like like on, on the road to being a loser with like no no hope and no, you know, no prospects. Um, but I decided like, I'm like, look, I'm every day at, this, at work, which was a cancer center. I was a secretary at a cancer center in New York City. Um, and was like, I need something to do because I sit around all day and do nothing. And, and get paid way too much for doing it. So I was like, all right, I'm going to start a blog. Um, so I started a Duke basketball blog, and that kind of it led to some other journalism, vaguely journalistic things in New York. And at a certain point, I was like, all right, you know, I need to go back to school. So I applied to UNC uh, to go back to the North Carolina area and got like a little mini fellowship there. So we, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, we moved to North Carolina Um and I was at the journalism program covering the ACC tournament for this this little, like, uh, digital news startup they were trying to do. And I wrote for my Duke blog that I had started in New York, I wrote this piece about how terrible the media relations were uh, at the ACC tournament, how stupid it was, like, the, the relationships between the media and the coaches and the media and the players were very superficial, and nobody was really trying hard, and it was just getting, like... This, just creating boring relationships, creating boring stories. So anyway, this post, for whatever reason, just went viral. Like, uh, it was picked up everywhere. Uh, John Feinstein, Tim Layden, Bill Simmons, they all wrote to me because they got their hands on the story somehow. Wow. Um, so with Simmons, we wrote back and forth a little bit. And this was in March of whatever year it was, I guess 2011. Uh, and Grail was going to start that summer. So that summer, I was interning at the Charlotte Observer for no money. Uh, which is there, the Charlotte newspaper. And I was like, you know what, let me, Grantland starting, let me write something about the NBA Finals, which was Dallas and Miami that year, uh, and I'll send it to him. And so I sent him this thing, and he's like, oh, I like this, let me share it with my editors. The editors got it, accidentally copied me on an email. One of the editors was like, I didn't really like this, I didn't think it was very good. But <laughs> <laughs> but I, I read his blog and thought it was kind of funny, so let's give him a shot at the blog. And so... Basically, they had this idea that they were going to do this this blog feature, uh, which was a nightly recap. Um, and they said, okay, you have a chance. You have three days uh, to to have your audition, basically, to do this nightly recap in sports. Do whatever you want. You make it your own. Make it funny. Do it, you know, make it your own thing. Uh, and we'll let you know after these three days. And in the afternoon, do a post about anything you want. So for the next three days, I'm running back and forth to the Charlotte Observer, uh, pretending to be sick so I can run home and write, you know, write a post for Grantland uh, and doing, doing this kind of stuff, doing a nightly recap, uh, well, I guess, uh, auditioning for it at the same time, which I didn't know. But anyway, at the end of it, they thought, you know, they thought some of the stuff I'd written was funny, so they gave me a little contract to do uh, the feature that became about last night, which was the, you know, the... Yep. The night review of sports, which was basically, I, I turned it into like a, an onion-style, satirical, jokey thing, um, and did that for about a year. Well, I did some other stuff, which was mostly baseball and college basketball. 
Um, and then 2012 came around, and Grown had no interest in golf. It's a little too cool for golf at that time, you know. Um, and so I begged them. I said, please, please, please send me to the Ryder Cup. The Ryder Cup is like, you know, as we've discussed, like even if you don't like golf, the Ryder Cup is the greatest thing ever. It's got, you know, elements of patriotism and history and everything. It's so cool. So please send me there. And so I begged and begged and begged, and finally they said yes. Um, and one of the first things I did there, Bill Murray was in a, the first ever Ryder Cup Pro-Am that they had. So I followed Bill Murray around. I wrote a thing about that. I wrote a preview, and then I wrote a feature on the Monday after about Ian Poulter and everything he had done, um, and which I guess Bill Simmons really liked. And so, the, you know, they said, fine, you know, you can cover the majors from now on if you can get credentials. And so that, that, I just, that was supposed to be the short version, but it turned long. But that's how I got into the golf beat for Grantland. That's that's great. I mean, we we actually, I think we uh, we post we post fun at Grantland in the past for kind of dropping the ball on uh, on golf coverage. Granted, we're a golf blog, so we only really pay attention to golf. But uh, no, it's good to see Grantland kind of getting on board slowly and uh, and covering golf. It's not I say it's not the same you know excitement level that it was when Tiger was first busting on the scene or whatever. But there's a ton going on in the golf world now. We've had a really slow season, but. You know, we've the, the majors have kind of saved us. The, the worthy champions we've had in the majors this year have kind of made it. Actually, yeah, you see, so pick, they picked some good events to cover this year. I guess we're going to talk about the majors. They haven't been the most exciting, but they've at least you know, Bubba winning a second major as much as we don't like him is it's a pretty big story. <laughs> what Rory yeah. did in the second half of this year is obviously a huge story. Um, so now that's good. That's good to hear. Good to see that Grantland is uh, up up in their golf games and sending you to Scotland. That is awesome. Yeah, well, and actually, I'm writing a book this year, and so I have I've been to about 30 tournaments at this point. I think it's 30 the number now. So I've wow. been I've been the whole year. Yeah, I'm I'm writing a, an agent contacted me when I when he saw some of my Grantland stuff. So I'm writing a book about the young players on the tour and kind of what life after Tiger is like. So that's going to come hmm. out next year. So yeah, I've been I've been to all of them, man, and I, I agree with you. I think it's you know we haven't had a Tiger presence this year, but I think it's been a pretty exciting year anyway. Uh, with some with some pretty cool, even you know, even the minor tournaments have been some pretty cool stories. And then just watching Rory do what he's done, and and even Martin Keimer earlier in the year, and it's just been pretty neat. Yeah, I, I always say, I mean, I I you probably agree. I'd rather Tiger sit out a tournament than do what he's done this year when he shows up and he's hurt and kind of distracts from the actual tournament and the actual good storylines that are going on. I think for me personally, I like when he's not in a tournament how the focus shifts away from him. When he's in a tournament, he's 15 shots off the face and they're showing every shot of his. I, that, that, that attracts from the coverage for me, you know. So, if it's, I mean, I'd obviously rather him win five tournaments a year like he did last year, but I'd also rather him be out injured than out there trying to play and kind of taking away from the overall viewer experience. But uh, did you make yeah. it to the, did you make it to the memorial this year? No, you know that was one that was one of the few I skipped, and it was just okay. the timing of it. Um, and it was just yeah because I, I forget the schedule, but I had been to like. Was it the Texas tournaments maybe before, right, that were right before it I had been to? And yep. so I was driving back and I would have had to fly to Ohio or something. And I was like, yeah, you know what, forget it. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do the next one. Yeah, well, one thing I will say is that with Tiger, what's interesting is that he, when he came back at the Congressional, his whole thing was like, you know, like, oh, the doctors are amazed I'm coming back so fast and, and people who have had the same, you know, the same spinal issue, this back issue that I've had are totally amazed that I'm coming back. It kind of proved that he came back too soon. I mean, yeah, yeah, he was a bit of a disaster this year, and said so it's like you know, it's 
Yeah, I mean, I, Tiger at his best is, is a huge addition to golf. But Tiger, this this version of Tiger is just a annoying distraction, and right up right up into including the the process before the Ryder Cup, where he all of a sudden he yeah. wanted Tom to pick him, and you're like, wait a second, why would Tom Watson ever pick you? Yeah, and you, you can't sit out three months after a back surgery. Like you sat, you got surgery, you you were supposed to cure this injury, right? You can't come back and be hurt after that. Like you can't. Like there's no there's there's no in between there. You come back when you're healthy, right? and, and I don't. I honestly, I hate when people accuse others of faking injuries. I don't think he's faking it. I think he way overplayed the back part for the PGA and the Bridgestone, just because like he said, it, it was nothing related to his surgery at all. It wasn't where he had the surgery. It wasn't pain that. And with how hurt he was at Bridgestone, you can't possibly play the. P, you could barely walk after that. And as somebody that's battled back injuries. You don't bounce back from that in three days. Like, I felt like it was a little theatrical, that whole thing. I hate saying that, but I really did feel that way. Yeah, it was. It was just like it distracted from everything else. We, you know, we had some amazing tournaments. Like, the, you know, the ad at Bridgestone in Akron, I mean, that was one of the best tournaments of the year so far. And one of the most revealing when you saw what Rory did to Sergio on Sunday. And it's like, geez, we got we to gotta focus on Tiger right now? Like, come on. They're like, the yeah. Golf- Golf is moving on, guys. Be like, get on board, you know? Yeah. But what, uh, I guess tell me a little bit more about what your book is about, what you mean by post-Tiger. Because we actually have a piece that's getting ready to run, I think probably on Friday, about we, we uh, one of our guys, Phil, did a deep dive into how much money Tiger is responsible for putting in the bank accounts of other PGA Tour players. So I was interested to see what you thought about, what you said about golf life after Tiger. Yeah, well, that's great to hear because I'm sure I will. You know, I'd love to steal some of that research for the, for the book when it, when it comes out. But no, you know, it's it's basically. Uh, do you know the book of Good Walk Spoiled by John Feinstein? I think it was published in '94. I've not read it, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea there was just it's just a season on the PGA Tour. He's following around a number of guys, and on a very simple level, that's what I proposed. That's what me, myself, and my agent proposed this year. Like, look, we've got Tiger Woods is kind of getting toward the twilight of his career. You know, Phil Mickelson, you could argue the same, even though, you know, even though they're both still very capable of winning tournaments. Uh, but we thought we could identify 2014 as a year where it's going to be a transitional year. The young guys are going to start winning a lot. Uh, the game is going to start to turn, and we're going to start to see new personalities emerge. And the timing we thought would be perfect for somebody to be there all season to find out what these guys are really like, to talk to them, to, to write a book that's about these guys, where they came from, what happens on the course this year, what happens off the course, and just sort of be a, a sort of uh, tell-all is the wrong word, but a sort of uh, just a, just a just a piece about what life is like on the tour right now and who these guys are. Um, yep. And so yeah, so that that's the basic premise. And you know, it, it, the nut the nut version of it is uh, you know, good walk spoiled for the new generation. Uh, as well as a treatise on on what happens after Tiger Woods and the PGA Tour. What can we expect uh, when Tiger's no longer the dominant force that he was? And I, I really think that it's been an amazing year. I'm really, really, really excited about this book. Um, you know, if people go to Grantland and read some of the stuff I've written, if you like that style, it's going to be like that except better because I withheld stuff because I don't want people to hate me yet because I want them to talk to me before the book is published. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, but there's going to be a lot of great stuff there. And, uh, you know, I think if you're not a golf fan, and you've probably run into this, Chris, like, 
people's perception of golf because it's like, oh, it's this boring, rich person's game. Well, I'll tell you what, not, that's not true at all. It's, you know, there may be some rich people in it, but it's not boring. Uh, it is a game that is so incredibly anxiety provoking that you get this assortment of personalities from lunatics to obsessives to, to, you know, just every kind of oddball and weirdo you can imagine. And these guys are just fascinating. And, and the way their personalities dictate what happens on the course is just a drama that I could, that I could witness over and over. And I love writing about it. And I, I just think it's going to be such an exciting book when it comes out. Well, it's, it's the most unique sport, in my opinion, just because it's the most individual sport. I mean, people compare it to tennis as far as, like, you know, be individual tennis players. But in golf, you are always playing the golf course. So you're basically playing yourself. So there's nothing that an opponent, other than, like, put pressure on you by hitting a good shot, there's nothing an opponent can do to defend you. Like, it's you're not playing – even in match play, you're not playing against your opponent – you and your opponent are playing the same hole, and whoever gets the lowest score wins the hole. So it's truly just the most – it's not a testament. Of, like in tennis, you can just kind of physically dominate another player, or you can beat him with strategy and whatnot, but you're playing against that other player. Golf is just truly a test of how everyone plays the golf course that day, and you are so much in, on your own. The biggest thing these guys' teams are, like sports psychologist, trainer, caddy, swing coach, short game coach, you know, as mm-hmm. much as it's, you're still on your own. Like, it is, you're on your own. And so it's like, when I thought about Tiger firing Foley this week and thought about, you know, he's got a, a decision to make, it's like it, it's Tiger's decision to, who he's going to trust with his swing. It's, there's no there's no head coach that's going to decide who, like, is Tiger's going to work with next. Like, you are just on, in charge of everything. And I, I've gotten a, a, I've got a friend of mine that plays on tour, and it's kind of surprised me as I've, as I've gotten to know him better about, just what tour life is like. And I think you're probably getting a, an interesting insight into that. I think it's probably completely different now than it was 25 years ago, where I feel like a lot of those guys were good friends and would go out and drink beers with each other after rounds. Now I feel like even more, the game has become more, just even more of an individual game. Those guys, you know, are going straight to the gym after a round, before a round, and it's turned into these 10, 12, 13-hour days whereas mm-hmm. golf kind of used to just be something where you'd show up and play. These guys were so talented. Not saying those guys didn't work hard, but it, it, the competition level has just kind of changed, and Tiger's probably to blame or credit for a lot of that. Yeah, and the money's changed, too. You know, I, I actually asked Henrik Stenson about that today. He had his press conference, and I said, you know, what's the difference? This, the question that led to it was, what's the difference between a European player and an American player? And he kind of risked on, like, what's the difference between the European Tour and the PGA Tour? Well, in the European tour, the money is low enough still that it still retains some of that sort of uh, camaraderie or whatever you want to call it, where people, you know, players will go out and they hang out. They're all in the same hotel. They're taking shuttle buses together to the course. They're going out and having a drink after. PGA Tour, man, everybody's got a private car. A lot of people have their family there. Like you said, everybody's got a team that might consist of your agent, your caddy, your swing coach, your mental coach. Um, and, you know, on and on. There could be a posse of up to, like, seven people, which I think I think would be, when we talk about the anxiety that golf provokes in a player, I think they like having a big team around because it sort of creates at least the illusion that there are other people who can carry part of the load for them, mm-hmm. even though there's this grim reality is that you're out there on the course on your own. Nobody else can hit those shots for you. Um yep. But yeah, and so these guys like don't hang out with each other very much. It's just it's just not a thing that happens. There's a lot of isolation there, and it can be very lonely. It can be 
Now, it's lonely for American players. Imagine what it's like, A, for European players, like a uh, young guy like uh, Jonas Blix, who's not married, who's out here, who's got nobody to hang out with. Now, imagine what it's like for someone like Sung Mulna, who doesn't even speak English. Yeah. You know? Like, I mean, guys, there's a lot of loneliness and isolation to the whole thing. And, and the two things I would add to what you say about golf is that it's a sport where there is no reaction to somebody else. And tennis is an individual sport, but you're always reacting to what somebody else does or, yep. or trying to influence what somebody else does. Every other sport you can think of, you know, all the team sports, basketball, baseball, football, you're always trying to influence. There's none of that in golf. And the second thing is there's no sport where you have so much time to think between shots. You know, there, there, is, there is just endless walking and, and thinking, and, and it creates the most, it's just like this mental sort of like vice that you have to withstand for an entire round. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's great. It's a great set of conditions for a sport that you, you can really look inside the mental, the mental state of these players. It's a game, it's a game, ultimate game of failure. I mean, I never really thought about it until I read Hank Haney's book about Tiger, just about how golf is controlling misses. And other than the shot that goes in the hole, I mean, obviously there's successful shots that don't go in the hole. You're basically mm-hmm. trying not to screw up basically the entire time. I mean, it's just the game has been so associated with failure throughout the years. I mean, you, you remember the failures, the chokes, and the missed putts more than some of you, you do some of the big moments. And I, oh, yeah. I, I, growing up, I always thought that the PGA Tour, I've talked about this with Kyle Porter from CBS on our podcast before, I always thought it was so glamorous and the best sports job you could have. And actually, when I, the more I see it up close and personal, the more I think it's, 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 it's 10% as glamorous as it looks. I mean, I, like I, I said before, they, you would think the players show up and the clubs are all ironed and pressed in their locker and they're, you know, they're <laughs> ready to roll. It's like, I picked him up at the airport. He's he's got five bags with him. He's on the road for seven weeks. He's carrying his own clubs at the airport. And like you just those are the kind of things you don't think about. He's up at five AM ironing his pants and that he you know, he's gonna be on national T V wearing and stuff like that. I just always assumed everything was so easy for these guys, but they do a lot of this they do a lot of this stuff by themselves and they still pay incredible expenses over the course of a year. I mean it costs so much money to you don't know when you're gonna fly out of a tournament. I know these guys make a ton of money, but you're talking about a guy that makes Maybe maybe four hundred thousand dollars on the year when you are paying the caddy fifteen hundred bucks a week plus a percentage of your earnings plus the hotel fees plus the baggage fees plus the flights and last minute flights are not cheap. I mean, I mean, it, it, money adds up really quickly, and it's not. Granted, they make sponsorship money too, and they they do fine financially, but but it's not nearly as profitable of a career as it probably looks like for the middle of the road guys. The top guys are doing just fine. Don't yeah. Worry about them, but. Um, it's not a huge cash grab all the way down, all the way down the line. Yeah, that's that's, that's so true. I mean, it's you know, it's very, very good for the guys at the top, and it's very, very hard to get there. And once you get there, it's very, very hard to stay there. Uh, and, that, and that's what makes it so fascinating. But yeah, it's it's, it's a cool. Like, I, I wouldn't say I was even a huge, huge golf fan even when I started covering golf. I was a big golf fan, but I've yeah, I've just become a, a really big fan over the last couple of years. Yeah, that's where we kind of came. We uh, we've been golf fans for forever, and we've been like uh, the guys that we started the website with. We all uh, three of us went to college together, and we've uh, kind of we've always just been like played fantasy golf together and talked about it forever. And we started a Twitter account for it about about almost two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, and we got kind of bored with that, and uh, we started the website in January. And it's it's really hard to do 
it's four of us that do it. It's hard to do. We all have full time jobs. And mm-hmm. it's hard to it's hard to constantly, you know, keep putting material up and keep going. But we've had a oh, lot yeah. of fun with it. I mean it's been uh we just felt like there was there's kind of a gap in like the story the Golf Digest is reporting on and the and the guys that are on the beat every week that are reporting on and we felt like there's a gap, you know, of guys that can just kind of look at golf in a fun, more fun, relaxed way, in a funny way. We don't take it too serious. We're not journalists. Like, we just try to have as much fun with it as possible, and it's been it's been a lot of fun so far, that's for well, sure. And that's, like, an interesting thing about golf, isn't it? Because somewhere along the line, in terms of journalism, it entered this, like, mythical territory where it's this, like, romantic, like, natural game that we must treat as though, you know, it's played by walking saints and everything. Uh, and it's funny because the I think golf might be like a decade behind every other sport in terms of uh, of how people talk about it. Mm-hmm. So now you know baseball or basketball or football we don't we don't deify it we don't treat it with kid gloves or anything. Golf we still like it's still like very difficult and very revolutionary if you're going to say like hey Bubba Watson's a jerk or, or you know something like very simple and obvious like that. It's like whoa like it's crazy to say something bad about golfers because we're so used to venerating them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, yeah, you guys are great about that. And really, like, I think, you know, with the, with the book, that's what I hope to do is to discuss golf in a very honest way that is hopefully funny at times. I mean, Hunter S. Thompson is one of my heroes. I love the way he writes. And so, if, you know, just that kind of style of, like, look, what, what is it? Like, forget all the hero worship stuff that 95% of journalists are doing right now. What is golf really like? What are these guys really like? And mm-hmm. that's, I think that's... That's, it's a new age for golf, and it's funny to watch the. Uh, it's funny to watch everybody react. People who have been used to to the the old way, which is where we treat these guys like you know, like they you know they're they're made of gold or something. Yep. No, I completely agree. So, why don't we uh, let's transition? We got we floated a couple questions on Twitter, and we got a couple good ones. And the best one we got, I thought, was from my friend Kyle Ford at CBS, who asked if you had a four ball tournament. Two players from the same alma mater, so you would form teams of two. You had to have gone to the same college together. Who wins that? And I thought it was a fascinating question. I'm not that well versed in where guys went to college. I know where a lot of the top guys went, but I know why Kyle's asking because he went to Oklahoma State and he's probably pretty pumped about Hunter Mayhan, Ricky Fowler team right now. But what did you get a chance to think about the question at all? Do you have any idea where you would lean there? Yeah, I mean, Hunter Mayhem and Ricky Fowler is a great pairing. I mean, it really would be. I mean, when you look at it now, they're both going to be on the Ryder Cup. Uh, well, we think Hunter Mayhem is. Yeah. We're pretty sure. Um, and, and they're both great match play players. I mean, Ricky Fowler has been a great match play player since his Walker Cup days. The guy, you know, the guy's just good. Um, although I have a funny story about him. I'll, if I can uh, have a diverge here for a second. Go for uh, it. He was playing Brian Harmon in the NCAA match play. Georgia versus Oklahoma State, and it was Harmon's senior year. I'm not sure what year it was for Fowler, but, and this is a story I got from Harmon and, and from Chris Hack, his coach at Georgia. They were on the 16th green, and, and Ricky was, let's see, he was one up, and Ricky was in for par already, and Brian Harmon had an eight-footer for par, and, and Fowler was with his coach, who was Mike McGraw at the time, and they just walked away. They walked to the 17th green before Brian Harmon had even hit his putt. And Brian Harmon, who won for the first time this year, is an incredibly competitive guy. And he saw them go, and he looked at he looked at his coach Chris Hack, and said, "We can swear, right? We've determined that we can uh, we can say whatever we want here." Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely, absolutely. He said they, they looked at him. They really just do that. And he goes, "I'm going to beat this motherfucker." And so 
he hits the eight foot putt and he goes on and takes the last two holes and beats Ricky Fowler. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, and later, I mean, they asked and like, you know, of course they were trying to insult him at all, but that's how Brian Harmon took it at the time, uh, and and that's what he did. But anyway, the other speaking of that, the other team I think would be really good. You have a lot of guys at Georgia, uh, and a lot of them have won this year. But I think in particular, they hate each other. But if they could get along, a team of like Brendan Todd and Bubba Watson would be great. Because you got Bubba, who's long as hell, and, and, and Brendan Todd, who's a great chipper and a putter. I think they would complement each other nicely on that one. Um, I mean, look, if you want to go to the Northeast, you've got Andrew Svoboda and Keegan Bradley from St. John. That would be <laughs> We love we love Tavota here. We uh, back in uh, back in February, Neil, one of our guys, was at the at the at Pebble Beach, and uh, I think he'd had a couple adult beverages. And Tavota uh, uh, crushed a ball on eighteen, but it was like into the wind or something. And he and uh, Neil yelled at him to, to not make sure he doesn't lay up on that second shot. And Tavota <laughs> like looked looked at him and was like. All right, all right, that sounds good. And like Neil had no idea at the time, but he was like twelfth over on the round. Like we had no idea. And he would have never yelled at him if he didn't know that. But like Trevor was so cool about it. He responded. He's like, "All right, I'll go for it." I think he either hit driver off the deck or three wood and went for it. He didn't get there, but he made like his only par of the back nine or only birdie of the back nine. So we've been huge Trevor fans ever since then. So I know you're trying That's to make awesome. a, little, a little a little joke there, but we're we got Trevor's back. No, no, Savona, I mean, Savona's come legit close to winning a couple times this year. Yeah, he's had a really good year. Now, listen, I might be totally wrong about this, but did Furyk and Mickelson both go to Arizona State, or am I, or am I way off? I think Furyk went to Arizona. And, and Mickelson um, Arizona State? Mickelson for sure went to Arizona State. Um, I think Furyk went to Arizona. Pat Perez, I know, went to Arizona State. Um, oh, so that well, maybe that maybe Perez and Mickelson. No, no uh, all right, so yeah, so that would have been a great one, but that's no good. Uh, let's see, you could have Billy Horschel and Matt Everys, Florida. Um, uh, you could do you another have, Georgia team. You could do Harris English and um, uh, what's his name? Brian, it could be Brian Harmon. There's someone else I'm forgetting too, from Georgia. Yeah, well, look, you have Russell Henley. You have uh, yeah. Pat Green was there. He's not an alum, but he was there for a little while. Uh, that didn't work out too well, but he was he was there. Um, let's see, you have, yeah, Brendan Todd, you have Harris English. Yeah, that, I mean, those Georgia guys have been unbelievable this year. Yeah, what's, uh, Trevor from Tapping Golf chimed in as well. Healthy Tiger and Michelle Wee, assuming she gets to play the normal women's tees. <laughs> that's good. That's really I, good. That's, that's spot on. I would, I, that's a, that's a hell of a team. That, that may take the whole thing. Well, as soon as like, we got this question, I thought about, putting a bracket together for just for the event in Boston and put it in just like throwing their four ball scores in afterward and seeing how it played out for one weekend. I thought that might be kind of interesting, but that'd be uh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. That, you, you also have to think about who would, uh, who are some Texas guys who would play with George Speed? Um, see, this is where my lack, lack of knowledge on where guys went to school. I know that. Yeah, Crenshaw so I, don't, I, don't know the, I don't know any Texas guys either, but yeah. Someone, someone could speak. But, yeah, no, it would, that would be cool. It would also be cool to do that to see, like, you know, like if the guy who won the tournament could be out the first day, you know what I mean, based on yeah. four ball scores on Thursday or, or Friday in this case. Okay. All right, another question we got. This is from Life Beater. What is the okay. second best club 
to use as a putter to finish a round? I think you said he's asking for a friend. Well, that's a reference. I don't know if you caught this, but that's a reference to a story that somehow didn't, uh, only I got. It was because I was staying at an Airbnb in Akron with this Canadian who had followed Jason Duffner around. Uh, and Saturday, Duffner was so frustrated with his putting that he gave his putter away to a kid on the 12th hole. Well, he gave his putter away, and he putted the rest of the round. He putted with a three-wood. And, so, and nobody knew this. The rest I know. Of the, like, Twitter references. And so I, I heard it from this guy and was like, you guys know, that's not true. you got to be kidding. And so I went to uh, I went to uh, Duffner on Sunday, and he was miserable because you know, he's hurt and he's not having a good time. Listen, Jason, I heard uh, you know, I heard you shake your other way. I just want to make sure that's true. And he's like, yep. <laughs> this guy wanted to do anything but talk to me at that moment. So I was trying to keep the questions quick. And so I was like, well, well you know, what hole is it? He's at 12. What, what did you putt with? And he goes, three wood. Uh, I go, okay, uh, anything else you want to say? He goes, nope. <laughs> <laughs> that's a strange one to me. I would have thought driver. So, so me and my, some buddies of mine, we go on a trip every year up to Michigan, up to, uh, it's called the Boyne Cup. We play it up in Boyne, Michigan. And we play 36 holes a day and we stay on a court, on a, right in a house, right on a golf course. And so after we finish 36, one of the nights we'll go out and we'll play two-man best ball night golf, just in the complete dark. So you can only bring three clubs. You can use cell phone lights, but you can bring three clubs. So that's part of the strategy is what you got to figure out what you're going to putt with. So I always bring a driver, a wedge, and a seven iron, and I putt with the driver. And it works pretty well. You just keep the putter. Like, you don't lift it off the ground. I just, like, drag it on the ground and putted it out. And I'm trying to – I can't – I can barely see the ball. So that's what I – but that's what I always use. We we had an epic playoff this year where I mean, you can't even see the pin where you're putting it. And we were, we were making 20-foot putts in the dark, and we had a few adult beverages with it. And it's a, a guy – an 18 handicapper made a made about a 40 foot putt to to have a hole. Ran in the bunker and was doing uh, doing sand angels in the in the bunker, screaming from the top <laughs> of his lungs. So I'm gonna have to leave his driver. Driver would be the club I would go to to finish out a round if I lost my putter somehow. Oh, that's great. That's terrific. So, all right, Trevor, our friend Trevor at Tapping Golf, he gave Bacon and I a great question. Uh, a couple weeks ago when we did the podcast. We'll start with that one, and then we'll go to this question this week. So the question was, if you had to permanently wear one of these two, and the, the audio of Bacon and I's podcast for this part got cut out, unfortunately, so a lot of this, what we said, went, went unheard. But if you had, to, you had to permanently do one of the two, either wear permanent clown makeup or permanent, permanently wear clown clothes, what would you choose? So, so it's either clown makeup or clown clothes? You had to permanently wear, wear one of the two. Yeah, oh, I would. I think that's easy. I would definitely wear clown clothes over clown yeah. makeup because yeah. you could like. I mean, like, is, is there wiggle? Like, what kind of wiggle room is there? You could even kind of get stylish, I think, with clown clothes. Whereas, like, clown makeup, you know, you're just terrifying everybody all the time. You look like a weird, like, John Wayne Gacy uh, pedophile serial killer as you walk around. Yeah, and that's what. Uh, so I said the same thing. The answer is pretty easy. It's clothes, but the reasoning why people would do it, I thought, was hilarious to me. It was like, I said I would just tell. Yeah, I lost a bet. I have to wear clown clothes, whatever. When I talked about <laughs> it with Bacon, with Bacon, he said, you know, yeah, you could be talking to a girl at the bar. You could be like, yeah, I, I just got off work. 
So he was going to go with the, the as if he was a clown. Like that was going to be his lie. He's going to say that he actually was a clown. He's going to be like, yeah, you know, if the girl sneezes, you can like pull the handkerchief out of your sleeve and whatnot. And I just absolutely lost it. I was like, so we decided whenever we play, the loser is going to have to dress up. Is going to have to wear clown clothes to the bar after the round. That's the, those are the stakes when we play. Well, yeah, there's nothing women like more than clown. You know, the kind of people who perform at kids' birthday parties. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Trevor's question this week was, and I don't, I, I got to be honest, I don't really understand the difference, or I don't really understand the question that well. But can a ghost and a zombie come from the same person? So the zombie would be, yeah, you die and you come back to life with your own body, whereas a ghost is you die as like a corporeal sort of spirit. Um, that's a great question, actually. Uh, well, that is that. No, that's a terrific question from Trevor. Are we, I mean, are we just assuming we're going full hyper, like fantasy story world here? Clearly, right? Like a TV show. You're lying. Like, let's say you're lying on a slab. Like you're 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 dead, right? You die. Two things are happening at once. Your soul is leaving your body, and you're becoming a ghost, and you're haunting. But at the same time, what's left of your body, minus the soul is turning into a zombie. So I would say that the answer is yes, and here's my reasoning, because a zombie is commonly understood, like in The Walking Dead and everything else, the soul is not present in the body. Because, like, you see them, and, like, it's like there's that moment where where the eyes go vacant, and then the next thing takes over. You're reanimated by, like, your the brain, which is no longer you. So you can have that without the soul, Whereas a ghost is like 100% soul. Like it's the soul with unfinished business. Like, you know, oh, it's like somebody, somebody killed me and nobody knows it, so I've got to haunt them until they know it. So I think you can have a zombie walking around in your old body, whereas like your soul is the ghost. And I have to think that the soul is like, or the ghost is a little bit annoyed at the zombie. Like, Jesus, like, cool it down a little. I've got a real mission to do here. <laughs> like, 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 <laughs> Man. Have you seen the movie Ghost, the 80s movie Ghost? Uh, was that the one Patrick Swayze? It is, yeah. I've seen it for a long time ago. I don't, I barely remember it. So I've got a buddy of mine who is like, an, like he's kind of a hard ass. Like he's just, he's a, a tough guy. Um, he'll, you know, he'll always rip on you. He's just a he's rough around the edges kind of guy. But for whatever reason, when it comes to movies, he cries at everything. I mean, like. <laughs> If it's an emotional episode of a TV show, he will cry. Like that's his one weakness. He embraces it though. Anyways, Ghost is like I think personally like it's just a cheesy '80s movie. Like it doesn't really hit you emotionally. I mean, yeah, it's about a girl whose like boyfriend or husband dies, and he's like, you know, there's a there's a plot there to it, but it's just kind of a cheesy movie. We're watching the end of Ghost, and I'm kind of laughing about just the, the you know the special effects that they had in the '80s and the music and whatnot, the cheesiness. And I look over, and he's just bawling. He has lost it to the final scene of Ghost, with Patrick Swayze's Ghost. I've never let him hear the end of that. What, what's the song? That was tip of my tongue. What's the song that's like the, the the emotional like climax song of Ghost? Oh man! It's like all I can think of is like the "I Had the Time of My Life" song, but it's not similar. Oh man. Anyway, anyway, I just, you, I just Googled it. It's, is it Oh My Love? Is that it? No. 
I don't know the answer to this. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it'll become, the image will become even funnier if you picture, like, your friend bawling to you. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can really follow up from your answer. I can't say that. I don't, I don't watch The Walking Dead, but I didn't think about it until you said, like, a zombie to me does not have a soul. So that would make sense that the soul would leave the body, the ghost haunts, like, it can't be seen, but the zombie physically haunts you. Does that sound right? Yeah, no, totally. I don't think they work in tandem. I think the ghost is a little snug. The ghost thinks it's, like, really way better than the zombie, and the zombie's just, like, the uh, the stupid kid, like, <laughs> like the idiot frat boy of the of the spirit yeah. world. The ghost is for sure a hipster. There's no doubt. <laughs> totally. totally. So I, th- I think the we've definitely appealed to any golf fans that are also ghost and zombie fans, and I think we've, uh, we've run you an hour, so I'm going to let you go, but... Uh, thanks a ton for joining me. I've been wanting to do this for a while. It's fun. Um, everyone, thanks for tuning in. This was Shane Ryan from Grantland.com. We will, uh, we'll definitely do this again, maybe post Ryder Cup or, uh, if I don't talk to you before then, have fun in Scotland, man. Enjoy. Yeah, sounds good, Chris. Thanks very much for having me on, man. You bet. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!